battle with a little bit of doubt. There are so many people in the world today that believe that the surest basis to alleviate doubt and to establish faith in something is comes from their ability to test it by one of the senses, by what they see, or by what they can hear, or by what they touch. Now, I don't know if, according to our limited minds as human beings, that that's not the best that we can come up with, that science isn't the most scientific approach, observation and experimentation when it's all said and done. I don't argue the point, practically speaking, I'm just not so sure that it really always corresponds to reality the way that we would like it to. For instance, take a magic show. I don't know about you, but I get duped every single time. They put the woman in the box, right? And they slice that box in half, and she comes out alive. And I think to myself, boy, I wish I knew how they did that trick. That's pretty amazing. But I know instantly that my senses have been fooled, right? We know sometimes our eyes play tricks on us. What'd you just see? Did you see that? I didn't see anything. What are you talking about? You didn't just see that? No, I didn't see anything. What was that? What was that sound? What sound? I didn't hear a sound. No, I heard a sound. No, you didn't hear a sound. You ever had that conversation with your spouse before? I think you have. I've been there. I know what you're talking about. Down throughout the years, you live long enough, your mind begins to slip. You, you forget things, right? Where were we? We were on the bridge. No, we were at the harbor. No, we were downtown. You know, that kind of thing. You don't have that perfect, the senses, they fail us over time. Now, I would submit to you that if your expectation is that God would reveal himself to you or continue to reveal himself to you experientially, that is, in a tangible way, in a way that you can see him or touch him or hear him audibly, that not only is that unrealistic, but I would also submit this and pay attention to this for this morning's text, that that is also not even the best way to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to grow in your faith of Jesus Christ. is not that way. Like you would say, boy, if I could just see God, I don't know that that would necessarily solidify your faith any more than what he's already provided. And I'll try and make my case for you in our text this morning. Last time we saw that Mary Magdalene, of course, went to the tomb early that morning and the body wasn't there. Now, she has no idea Jesus has risen from the dead. She runs off looking for Peter and John. Peter and John jump at the notion. Of course, they also don't know either. John said as well that they didn't know. So they ran and they knew something was up, but they weren't sure. They got to the tomb, they looked in the tomb, and they noticed and they saw the grave clothes lying there, unwrapped. The napkin that would have covered his face, neatly folded and placed to the side. And John said that he saw and that at that point he believed. But as I mentioned last week, and as we're going to see, I think, this week, he believed, but his belief was surface level, sort of. It was superficial in a lot of ways. It wasn't that deep down saving kind of faith, not just yet. Because what did they do at that point? Well, they just went on home. They didn't even bother to clue in Mary Magdalene, who was still weeping profusely there at the tomb. 
what they now believe. They just went home. And so Mary, staying at the tomb, is the first one, after Jesus rises from the dead, of whom he reveals himself to. What a touching scene that was. Maybe you remember if you were here last week, where at first she doesn't even recognize him, which makes sense. He was marred, as Isaiah 52 says, more than any man. But then she recognized him because he called her by name. He said, he's a good shepherd. I call my sheep by name. Mary, he said. Then she knew, and she said, Rabboni. And it's almost like she just grasped a hold of him, maybe fell to his feet, like, I got you, and now that I've found you, I'm never going to let you go. But then Jesus said to her, verse 17 of our text this morning, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, we got some things that we need to do here, so don't cling to me, you know, in the flesh. Instead, he says, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So it says, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So what's the first thing that the Lord tells Mary Magdalene to do? Go to the disciples, specifically. My guys, go to my guys. And tell them that I've resurrected from the dead. Now this is a pretty remarkable, pretty fascinating scene here. What's taking place. Whether you realize exactly the implications of this or not. Please pay attention to this. Because understand in those days that the testimony of a woman was not held in high regard in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it would have been completely dismissed. Jesus, again, leave it to him to turn the whole social order upside down. Kind of amazes me sometimes that modern-day civil rights activists get so much credit for what they've done. I actually have no problem with that. But how come nobody ever credits Jesus? What does Jesus do here? He enlists a woman to bring the good news the disciple to the disciples, the first missionary out to the disciples. Quite progressive of Jesus, I might say. Pretty awesome when you think about it. It would also account for the fact why we're told, though, in the book of Mark, that the disciples initially didn't believe. Which is interesting, because we just said that John said he looked in and believed, but then now Mary comes to him and he says, well, I don't know. Because Mark said they didn't believe at first. They didn't believe Mary's testimony. Maybe they didn't believe because they thought, well, he's not going to reveal himself to you first. He would have revealed himself to us. Who knows why they didn't believe? But you can tell here as we continue that there is definitely not a celebration going on. This is not a resurrection high-five service happening here in verse 19. It says, then, the same day at evening, the same day of the resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So you have to understand here, before Jesus comes on the scene, the condition that the disciples were in. Keep in mind that it was only a few days earlier that they had come, the religious leaders did, and arrested our Lord, and then, of course, ultimately took him to the cross and unto death. And so perhaps the thought process in the mind of the disciples is, are we next? The prevailing emotion in that room on that night, according to John, is that of fear. It says that the doors 
were shut. They were probably locked or barred so that nobody could get in. Because in their mind, if the religious leaders were bold enough, if they had enough influence within the community and with Pontius Pilate to get Jesus crucified, well then surely they must be in trouble as well. Especially when you consider that according to Matthew chapter 28, the word on the street was that Jesus' body was missing and that the religious leaders were paying people to say that the disciples stole the body. So here they are huddling up, hiding out, thinking that at any given moment they're going to kick in the door and storm the compound. I don't know if anyone in here has ever literally hid for their life before. But I'm sure it is some kind of experience indeed. So keep in mind before this happens, there's fear. There's locked doors. Maybe a little bit of panic in this room. Not a celebration. This is, we're afraid for our very lives. And then, all of a sudden, verse 19, end of verse 19, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, I love how when Jesus sees the disciples for the first time, he begins by saying, peace be with you. Because if it were me, I would have said, you guys are pathetic. I told you I was going to go to the cross, and every single one of you went running, and now you're all hiding, and Peter was denying and cursing. No, he doesn't do that at all, does he? He says, peace be with you. He could have said, the one time I needed you guys, the one time I needed you guys, you weren't there. Three and a half years, I didn't need you for anything. The one time I could have used you, be at my side when I was on the cross, and you abandoned me. He doesn't say that. He says, peace be unto you. What does that tell you? What does that tell me as Christians? That no matter how badly I fail the Lord, that when I come into his presence once again, he responds similarly. Peace. Peace be with you. We have the peace of God, and we have peace with God because of that sacrifice and that resurrection. You know, we live in a world today in which we could, if we wanted to, choose to shut the doors in fear and live afraid because there's economic uncertainty in the world and political controversy and moral depravity in the highest these days. There's a group called undojesus.org. Don't like their site. They were picketing the other day. One of my friends on Facebook posted a picture of them picketing, and they were holding signs saying, if Jesus returns, kill him again. Now, number one, I don't know what motivates that kind of hate for someone like Jesus at all. But even on a logical level, if Jesus returns again, kill him? I'm not sure I understand that. If anyone returns, I have some questions for them. I'm not killing anybody that returns from the dead. It doesn't even make any sense trying to rid the world of Jesus. But that is what Jesus is saying. That is what the Bible is saying, that the world's going to continue to look more and more like as we go. And yet he says in his word, be still and know that I'm God. Calm yourself. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Sort of like what he's telling his disciples here as he appears in the midst. He says, look, I overcame death. I conquered the grave. Now be at peace. And today, people, they fear 
global nuclear war. They fear a, a global credit crisis. They fear global warming. And I'm sure even for some of us, these things concern us as well, and I understand why. But I believe that no matter how difficult our situations get, even for you individually, in your life, very personally, when you're going through something that causes you to be afraid, to doubt, to worry, it's about at that point, sometimes when you don't even believe that he shows up, just in the midst, just out of nowhere. Because notice the subtlety there in the text. John doesn't say, and the door flew open. He doesn't say, and he huffed and puffed and bowed the door down or something like that, or he barged it in and they heard this creaking noise. No, he just literally, the verbiage there, he appeared in the midst. They were hanging around in the room, and Jesus just appeared, which is why in the book of Luke it says that when Jesus appeared, they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a ghost because he's now got a glorified body. It's a little different now. And he just appears in their midst. And so to alleviate their fears of thinking they had seen a ghost, verse 20, it says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the book of Luke tells us that he also ate broiled fish and honeycomb to show them that he had bodily resurrected, that he wasn't a mere spirit, but that he still had a body at this point. So then, end of verse 20, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And that right there is the limitation of the English language in a nutshell. Because that is the understatement of the centuries to say that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I am glad when I take my car to the car wash and it's clean afterwards. That makes me glad. To see the risen Lord after they had lost all hope, they would have been absolutely exuberant. Now, what was it, though, in their minds that made them glad? It says, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad because it was then that they knew that it was really him. You know, I'm one of those, and many, many, many Bible teachers also believe that we, too, will see those holes and that wound in his side someday. And I believe that's how we'll identify our Savior in heaven when we get there someday as well. Because many years, even after John writes this scene down, John records a vision that the Lord gave him in the book of Revelation of heaven, in Revelation chapter 5. And John, when he saw Jesus, described him as a lamb as though it had been slain still seeing those marks. It's been said the only man-made thing in heaven are the marks on the body of the Lord. In John 15, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And a lot of teachers, and I'm with them, believe that we're going to see the proof of that greater love forevermore. That he will bear those marks. So powerful it was in the minds of the disciples that they were now ready to be commissioned for the Lord's work. It says in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's quite a commission, isn't it? He compares our commission to his commission. 
in the same way that the Father sent the Son. Well, how did the Father send the Son? Pretty big deal, wasn't it? He said it over and over again in the book of John. The Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me. He wanted people to know. Jesus declared it to the crowds. He declared it in small groups. He talked about it with the woman at the well in one-on-one conversations. But he declared that he was the promised Messiah, that he brought with him God's forgiveness, a forgiving God to wipe away the sins of humanity to all who would accept that. And so in the same way that God sent his son, his son now says that he sends you and me. So don't ever let anybody tell you that that's the sort of thing that you're supposed to keep private. Well, you know, these sort of things are just out of bounds. You don't talk about this out here in society or at a restaurant. You just kind of keep those things to yourself. And you talk about this, but you can't talk about No, don't, don't buy into that. Because then they're dictating to us what gets to be talked about. When in reality, we've been commissioned in the same way that the Father sent the Son to represent the Son, that there's good news, that there's forgiveness that's offered. Now, I'm not saying it's easy sometimes, because it's pretty challenging. But at least here, he doesn't send us out, he doesn't commission us empty-handed. Look at what it says, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And by the way, there is, I think, two points we'll see in our text this morning. But one right here. A greater evidence for the existence of God than what I can see or what I can touch. Because to me, the Holy Spirit is a much closer, better corresponding reality of God than anything I could see or touch. There's nothing like walking with the Holy Spirit of God. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. Kind of takes you back to Genesis, doesn't it? Remember how he breathed life into Adam? And here, in sort of a recreation, they're now, I believe at this point, born again as he breathed on them. No doubt he'd been waiting since Genesis chapter 2 to breathe on these guys, hadn't he? Pretty spectacular. What's the first thing he tells them to do after they're born again? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, there, verse 23, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, that might sound at first glance like he's saying that disciples have been given the power to provide forgiveness or to retain sins. You know, like we could go down to the mall. It'd be kind of fun in some ways. If God did give us that kind of power, you're forgiven. You, however, are not. You're forgiven. You definitely are not, right? But he's not doing that at all. He's not giving us that kind of power or authority. Even the religious leaders one time said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. There are those who disagree with me. There are those sort of that run in what they call today apostolic circles. They believe that Jesus Christ was giving apostles the authority to absolve sin. That there are people in positions today that have the authority to pronounce forgiveness 
on your sins. You do such and such, and I tell you that you are forgiven. I respectfully disagree for a couple reasons. Number one, because you'll notice that in this scene, Jesus here is speaking to apostles, but Luke 23 says there's more than just apostles there. Not just is Thomas not there, but there's other apostles. Luke 23 says that the two disciples unnamed that were on the road to Emmaus were there as well. And, quote, other disciples were in the room. So this was not some special apostolic privilege that was being given to them to forgive sins. Now, not to mention, and probably even more compelling, is that throughout the entire New Testament, throughout the book of Acts, and within the epistles, we don't see in any place at all whatsoever where a disciple proclaims the power to forgive sins in any way, in any verse at all whatsoever. What they do demonstrate throughout the New Testament is the authority to proclaim forgiveness. It's very different for me to say that you are forgiven because I declare that you're forgiven versus proclaiming that God offers up forgiveness because of that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And so that's what we're called to do. We're commissioned to proclaim forgiveness. It's a wonderful privilege. Psychiatrists and experts estimate that as many as one half of those struggling with mental illness have, as a component of their illness, a deep down sense of unforgiven guilt. And I can tell you this, even if people don't struggle from mental illness, everyone has skeletons in their closet. Everyone has a past. Everyone has things they'd rather just forget. They'd rather not remember. They'd rather wish they could go back and do over again. Everyone, if you get to know somebody, if you take the time to befriend somebody, to love on someone, and allow them to open up to you, I guarantee you everyone has that in their background, in their past. And so we have the privilege of proclaiming forgiveness. And we can do it with authority. We can say, hey, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, you are forgiven. Because that's what the Bible declares. Now on the flip side, though, We've also been commissioned with proclaiming that one's sin remains as well if they choose to walk in continued rejection of Jesus Christ. Someone can say, hey, back off of me, you radical Jesus freak. I'm not into that kind of thing. I'm into meditation. All right. That might be their thing, but then guess what? Until they change their stance about Jesus Christ, their sin still remains, and we have been given the authority in Christ to proclaim that that's the truth. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Can't we just proclaim forgiveness and leave the other part of it out? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Is that a good idea? Answer this question. What need would anybody have for a Savior if they first don't realize that they're a sinner? If we don't first convince them that they are in need of forgiveness, why would they care about the message of forgiveness? And so we must proclaim both. Because outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ there is no hope. There is no other way at all. 
But try in your first ever witnessing experience to explain that to a guy like Thomas, who now enters our scene here this morning, who was a logical guy. He was a rational guy. He was a scientific kind of mind, the way that he thought, sort of black and white, very intelligent probably, but had a tough time with spiritual things and connecting the dots. Remember one time Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas responded with, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Very literal, like Thomas is going, heaven? How could we possibly know how to get heaven? What sort of GPS finder can work for that? We don't have any kind of craft that can get us to heaven. He's very literal in that sense. Maybe you can relate with Thomas a little bit. Maybe you can understand where he's coming from here. It says here in verse 24, his initial reaction. Now Thomas, notice it says called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Ah, see? Proof that you should never miss Bible study. Thomas wasn't there, right? But seriously, actually, note that, if you will, okay? Because I'm serious about that. That oftentimes, believers are out there struggling. And I don't mean out there meaning not in this church, but just not in fellowship with believers. They're out there struggling when in here, and again, not just this place, but anywhere where the gospel is being taught, in here, the Lord is moving, because he's teaching us his word and we're worshiping or you're being encouraged by a brother or a sister in the Lord as you go outside and fellowship after service or before service this morning. And you miss out on that. No, I'm taking that very seriously. Thomas wasn't there. And so the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And the idea is they're repeating it over and over again. And nevertheless, it says, verse 25, so he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Wow, that's pretty hardcore stance right there. Some call Thomas doubting Thomas. Some come to the defense of him and say, well, he's really no different than the other disciples or even a lot like us sometimes. I tend to be more in that camp as well. Though I will grant that Thomas was definitely a pessimist. Remember back when Jesus proposed that the gang all go to Bethany to minister to Lazarus, right? And Thomas said, all right, let's go down there with him and all die together. Even though he had walked with Jesus for over three years and seen Jesus do miraculous things, his attitude was like, okay, fine, let's just go and die. And he's not a coward. We'll give him credit for that. But I don't know really how strong his, his faith is here. I don't know that he's not a pessimist. Even after all that Jesus had done, you would think the response would be, well, you know, I've seen this before. Let's just go and trust him. Because he's going to come through. He always does. But that's not Thomas. His immediate response is to think the worst in every given situation. Now, don't start looking around in the room for someone who you know that fits that description, but there are those of us within the body of Christ that are, uh, you know, prone to that kind of thing. I would say that all of us at times 
are given to that kind of doubting sort of way. I think we're skeptical by nature a little bit. I don't think all of that by, that, uh, by the way, is bad, that we're at least initially skeptical. My guess is my friend Charlie Campbell, who will be here next week, teaching on how to defend our faith, was at one point in his life a skeptic. And that led to his research and his study to help him defend the faith. I know it was true in my own life. Then none one of us born a Christian, right? You're all born in denial of God. At some point you had to be convinced, no matter how he did it. So some skepticism is not bad. It's been said that doubt is a prelude to knowledge. Sometimes a little bit of doubt says, man, I better look that verse up. I better read my Bible more often. I better hang out with the Lord a little bit more often. That's just because someone proclaims it or says it on the radio or on TV doesn't mean it's true. Remember years ago when those Jesus seminar guys said that the disciples had made up the resurrection because they just couldn't handle the disappointment of the crucifixion? Thomas never would have gone for that. And that's why God gives us Thomases, skeptics, even among us. Because they would have never gone for that kind of thing. Ten out of the eleven disciples, Judas is gone now, but ten of the eleven, only John, would not die a martyr's death, including Thomas. They would have never died a martyr's death for a lie. They died because they were convinced of the resurrection. They all ran for their lives when Jesus was arrested. They didn't have the strength or the courage to stand up to Roman authority until when? After the resurrection. Because they were thoroughly convinced that he had risen from the dead and that they would also, and that there was ultimately nothing that anyone could do to harm them or hurt them or threaten them. As my old pastor used to say, you cannot threaten me with heaven. And they had boldness then as a result to go out and proclaim the message. By the way, that makes the accounts even more credible the gospel accounts. Isn't it great that God in his word doesn't hide the failures of his heroes? Peter and John and James and now Thomas. Boy, if I was making up a gospel, I certainly wouldn't have begun by saying the first resurrection appearance was to Mary and the second resurrection appearance was to a bunch of unbelieving disciples. Think about it. And then I wouldn't record in the gospel how they doubted and how they feared and how they denied all along the way. Again, marks of authenticity in the gospel recordings because God wants us to know that we're all a little bit that way. That's better to identify with. That's actually more believable to me. I am like those guys. Thomas's name, it says there, the twin. I don't know who his twin was, but I know who his twin is sometimes. It's you and it's me, right? Because we act just like him when we doubt. Oh, we may no longer doubt the resurrection. You may no longer doubt the fact that you've been forgiven, per se, perhaps. But oftentimes we doubt his hand on my life. We doubt that God can help me get this job, that God can provide for my family, that God can restore this relationship. Those are the kinds of things 
that we sit and wonder, can God still do this? We doubt him. We doubt when we pray for a certain thing and the exact opposite occurs. We doubt when sudden tragedy strikes our life. And so why would we call Thomas Doubting Thomas unless I'm going to say I'm Doubting Joe? Because I will confess that I doubt, that I have doubts. In fact, implicit in the word faith has to be the notion of doubt. Because if you knew anything for a fact to be true, you wouldn't need any faith. But you require faith because you're prone at times to doubt, just like Thomas. But he's so gracious, the Lord is. So gracious with us. Meets us where we're at. When you were doubting, you remember some of those times? You remember him meeting you? Showing you through it? Helping you through it? Helping you to believe? To recover? To be strengthened in faith again? He does the same thing here for Thomas. It says, and after eight days, verse 26, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. So still eight days later, he's emphatic in his denial of the Lord. Remember he said, unless I put the print of the nails, my hand there, and my hand into his side, unless I do that, I will not believe. I wonder how many times he said that over the last eight days when they were trying to convince him, creating a very awkward moment here when Jesus shows up on the scene there. In verse 27, it says, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, ignore us, of course, singling out Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. I love how he almost verbatim repeats what Thomas said eight days before, even though Jesus wasn't there. His way of saying, even though I'm not with you guys physically any longer, I still know what you said. <laughs> and the awareness of the presence of God in your life is one of the best remedies for doubt that there is. Oh, why can I be afraid? Is it only because I can't see him standing there that I'm afraid or that I'm worried? So what do I got to do? I've got to seek him. How do I become aware of his presence? Prayer, worship, fellowship, these kinds of things right here. I know the Lord is present. I'm not afraid. Who's afraid right now? Nobody's afraid right now because we're aware of the presence of God in our lives, in this place, within our family. And we're not afraid. We don't worry. We don't doubt in those moments. Because what's your guess? I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but do you think Thomas went ahead and actually touched Jesus here? I personally believe he did not. Because look at the immediate response in verse 28. It says, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And by the way, Jesus doesn't correct him. <laughs> right? He doesn't go, Hold on, I'm just a prophet. Don't get carried away. He doesn't say that. He receives his worship. Unlike the disciples, 
Peter in Acts 10, when Cornelius, he was praying and had a vision, Peter walked in the room, he fell down before him, and Peter said, uh-uh, I'm just a mere man. The angel in Revelation, when John fell before and began to worship the angel, not knowing who it was, the angel said, see to it that you do not do that. Worship God. Everybody in the Bible refused worship but one, Jesus Christ. He didn't correct Thomas in this. He did, however, rebuke Thomas in his unbelief. But in that rebuke, we find a wonderful blessing for you and for me. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, who's he talking about there? You and me. Blessed are us who have not seen and believe, who have chosen to walk by faith and not by sight. We cannot see him physically. We cannot touch him literally, but we're blessed. Why are we blessed? Because we don't require that. So our faith is stronger. Our faith is stronger because we take him at his word. You know, I'll admit to you that I used to be. I don't anymore. But I used to think that it would be better if I could just see God. I used to think, you know, I wish I could have been there for the Sermon on the Mount or the raising of Lazarus from the dead or the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, a lot of people witnessed those miracles, right? I mean, at least 5,000 witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 sort of by definition, right? So a lot of people witnessed those incredible miracles of God and yet how many are still left in the upper room for this resurrection appearance? Very few. So what does that tell you about experiencing the supernatural as it contributes to your level of faith? Not a whole lot. That's why Jesus said, don't go seeking after signs. Because it's not signs and wonders, but his word that makes the difference. If you're dependent on signs and wonders, on touching and seeing, then you're going to be putting God to the test. Happens every day all around the world. God, if you'll just get through me through this one crisis that I'm in right now, out here at sea, in a boat, and we're sinking, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. Lord, I'm late to my appointment. If you'll just move the traffic to the side and get me off the road and get me there on time so I can make that sale for my company, I will pray every day for the rest of my life. People put God to the test like that all of the time. not saying any of you do. But people do that all the time. And it doesn't work because it reverses the order between God and man. It's to say, I want to have a relationship with God, but I want to be God in that relationship. I want to tell him what he should do for me. And you cannot expect, though in his mercy sometimes he does whatever he does, but you cannot, by rule, expect God to go along with that. Because by not giving in to your demands, he's only sparing you a weaker faith that would be dependent on supernatural experiences and at that, upon your demand. Why would God want to do that? Because even if he did give in and give you what you want, he'd have to do it over and over and over again. 
It's like the sheep farmer who went to God one time and said, God, if you're really there, then make it be that just 10 of my sheep are over in the barn. And sure enough, 10 of his sheep were over in the barn. And then someone asked him, did you then believe? He said, well, no, I started to believe, but then I tried it again the next day. Lord, if you're still there, now make there be 10 sheep over on this side of the barn. And that's how we operate. We would continue to need proof. Remember the day after he fed the 5,000, they wanted what? Bread. They wanted him to perform more miracles. They weren't interested in the miracle worker. They wanted to see him do his thing. Peter, in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, said as much. Peter said something very fascinating. He said, look, I was an eyewitness. He said, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. You understand that? I beheld his glory. I heard the thunderous voice from the clouds come down and say, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Peter said, I was an eyewitness of that, and yet you would do well to cling to the more sure word of prophecy. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you really think that God doesn't know the very best way to reveal truth to us? Do you really think that we know better? Well, if God would only do this, then I would believe. I submit to you that the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the reliability of the Word of God is greater evidence, the greatest evidence for the existence of God than anything you could ever see or touch or experience at all whatsoever. That he knew what he was doing. Faith comes by hearing and that of the Word of God. Why? Because the Word doesn't change. I change. My senses change. My senses fail. The world changes. Moral standards change. Politics change. Social trends change. But the Word of God does not change. So I hang my hat on the Word of God. Amen?